Welcome to the Women in Public Policy Program Seminar Series Podcast at the Harvard Kennedy School. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the WAP Seminar for this week. Uh, it's my distinct pleasure to welcome Stephanie Creary, uh, one of our very own. Uh, Stephanie served as a research associate here at the Harvard Business School. Uh, for a number of years before taking a faculty position at the Cornell SC Johnson School of Business. Uh, and she's now at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, Stephanie received many of her degrees uh, from Boston College or Boston University. I've been in all of them. Okay, yes. oh, Boston <laughs> University and Boston uh, College as well as an MBA from Simmons. Um, so in her research, uh, Professor Curry studies how workers learn from their differences and reveals how they engage their multiple identities in an enhancing way to cultivate positive identities and improve the quality of relationships uh, across difference. So today, what we're going to hear about is what does it mean to help? Investigating the helping orientations of men uh, working in elite jobs. Please join me in welcoming Professor Stephanie Curry. Thank you all so much for coming. This is exciting. Um, you know, I spent 16 years of my life in this town. Um, I've been to so many of the universities as a student and also worked at this fantastic one. And I owe so much of my ability to be here today to talk about this presentation to the sets of experiences that I myself had. Um, so I want to acknowledge a couple of people who have helped me get to where I am today and, and certainly through the help that they provided me have allowed me to think about this as a topic worthy of research. Um, first, um, Hannah Riley Bowles is somebody who I met, I'm going to age myself and the rest of us um, very quickly in the next five minutes. Hannah is somebody who I met uh, 12 years ago when I was in my MBA program at Simmons and I lived in an apartment in Charlestown with three other women, tiny, tiny space. Um, and one of my roommates, uh, was I was talking about what I might do after my MBA, I think I wanted a corporate job, it didn't sound like me. I started thinking about maybe a PhD in organizational behavior. I had some great mentors at Simmons who were saying maybe you want to become a professor, but I was like, more school, that sounds terrible. And my roommate, who is not in this field, actually happened to know Hannah. She says, I think I might know somebody who is doing what you want to do. She's a professor at the Kennedy School. Would you like to meet her? And I'm, I'm thinking she would never want to talk to me because I have no connection to her. Hannah said, come on down. And so I came here somewhere in one of these rooms, sat down with Hannah, and she sort of talked me through this whole process of what it was like to be a P to get a PhD, what it was like to be a woman in a predominantly um, a male-dominated field. Um, so the, the other person, sort of at the same time, who I came to contact with was Robin Ely at the business school. Uh, so part of the work that she does at the gender, Center for Gender and Organizations at uh, Simmons College puts her into contact with many of the MBA students there at the time. And so I had heard her come and present her paper on rethinking political correctness with Martin Davidson and Deb Meyerson. Um, and I ended up going up to her afterwards and saying, uh, you know, is there any more things that you've written that would help you to understand this context? And she says, why don't you just come visit me at Harvard at business school, and I'm thinking, why is she so nice? This is crazy. If you know Robin, this is actually what she does. And so she was the second person who helped me talk about why I might want to get a PhD in organizational behavior, but she was also somebody who helped me to understand that studying research on diversity 
uh, was a, could potentially be a viable career opportunity. At the same time, Robin introduced me to Professor David Thomas, which is who I RA for for four years. And so my whole notion of what diversity looks like from a practice perspective um, comes from all the work that David and I did together during my time here. So I wanted to sort of acknowledge that because those interactions inform so much of what this uh, perspective is today, the notions of that help is necessary to get into positions that are considered elite. And when we think about who actually holds the positions um, and the source of resources that allow people to get into the elite, it happens to be men, particularly in this country. So my co-authors are Brianna Barca-Caza, who's a professor at University of Manitoba, Heis Gibson, who in here besides Lumumba knows Heis Gibson? Okay, so he graduated uh, in 2015, we were in our PhDs in Boston at the same time, from uh, HBS, from the Tom program, wrote his dissertation on the Army, um, he's at West Point now. Uh, so much of our ability to access people for this study and so much of our fact-checking around are we making stuff up or is this real does come from the fact that he's an insider, he's active duty, now soon to be, he's getting his ceremony as soon, a colonel in the U.S. Army. Laura Morgan Roberts, who's a former HBS professor, um, as well as Aaron Kaza, who's actually married to Brianna, who's on the study as well. Um, so let me just sort of set this tone for you here. This is what you might already know. For some of you, this might be new. Um, but the idea that when we think about uh, senior leadership positions, which I'm constructing as elite jobs, there continues to be a dearth of women and minorities in these positions in both the private and the public sectors. So if we start with the private sector, 5% of Fortune 500 CEOs are women. There's an interesting New York Times piece very recently within the last month that said there are more male CEOs named John than there are women CEOs in the Fortune 500. Um, less than 1% of Fortune 500 CEOs are black. There are three black male CEOs. TIA Cref, uh, JC Penney, and at Merck. Um, there has only been one black female CEO in the Fortune 500, Ursula Burns, who retired from Xerox. There are currently no black female CEOs in the Fortune 500. Um, if we turn to particularly the Army, 5% of US general officers are women, and 8% of US general officers are black which is stark if you especially look at the fact of the enlisted force of the US Army, more than 30% of enlisted officers are African-American. Um, the numbers are smaller for other racial groups, and, I, and I'm not gonna talk too much about other racial groups right now because I think the biggest um, numbers are um, in the African-American minority group, but if you do have questions about other races and how they fare relative to some of what I talked about today, I'd be happy to answer those questions. Okay, so let me sort of set the conceptual stage by saying, um, again, reiterating that in order to get into these high status or elite jobs, we know that health is necessary for upward mobility. We know this both from a knowledge scientific perspective, but also from a practical perspective as well. Um, so what is an elite job? Um, an elite job is one that is considered to have prestigious work. It's what everybody wants to do because it affords me a certain level of status. People who are in these jobs have control over valued and scarce resources, and they're known, the job holders are known to have some type of advantage, material or symbolic, um, because they hold these jobs. So this notion of symbolic advantage is people might give you the benefit of the doubt when you're offering a suggestion, 
because you hold this job and so they're presuming and projecting rightfully or wrongfully all sorts of competence based on what you're saying. So that's what we're talking about. But we do know from past research, Lauren Rivera, who's a professor at Kellogg, as well as um, David Thomas in his book about the careers of minority executives, we do know that in order to get and perform well in these jobs, that support from senior members of the organization occupation is important. So that's, this is what's established. Um, but if we look at this idea of helping more broadly, particularly in the organizational studies literature, so I come from organizational behavior or organizational studies, which obviously borrows a lot from it, um, sociology, psychology, is that as we think about what help means in the literature, it's often constructed in a very feminine way. We tend to focus more on women as the helpers, which ends up meaning it's often stereotyped as women's work, marginalized as women's work, and not viewed as leadership. Um, and so there is another body of literature on helping on, at work that doesn't focus on gender and race or any type of dimension of difference. It talks about tasks. So I am on a project team, I need some assistance, job-related assistance, how might I get help or support? These two themes are gonna come up later in the data, which is why I profile them now. The reality is, if we take in total past research in the literature, we know that help, our help that we've been given, the help that we offer to others, is not always evenly distributed across gender and race. We know that men's networks are largely male-dominated. Females' networks are largely female-dominated, and so that means we tend to help people who are similar to us along the dimensions of first gender, but also race. We don't have a lot of research other than that on cross-race developmental research, cross-race developmental relationships and networks to sort of look across race and gender, um, but I think it's interesting to know that we do already have this assumption that People aren't helping people always just because it's my job or it's the right thing to do. It, it, it tends to lean towards who do I perceive is like me and that I feel comfortable with. Um, so last spring, I came to the HBS Gender and Work Conference, um, which was focusing on the black uh, experience at work. And just before I presented this, there was a, a diversity leader from PricewaterhouseCoopers who was giving her presentation um, and in her presentation she showed this video that's actually part of a larger initiative that they refer to as Outsmarting Human Minds. All these videos are accessible on their website and Professor uh, Banaji is actually a contributor to this and this is actually linked to an effort um, around making people aware of their unconscious biases that's linked to Harvard University. So you might be interested, if you don't already know, to look at the, the, the um, videos. They're very cool. So I'm gonna show you this one because I think this one actually captures in a very concise way the phenomenon that I'm interested in and that we talked about in the study. So I'm gonna let you go ahead and play.
take anything away, keep watching that video because I think it certainly sets the context for um, the things that I think are going to become more apparent when I show you the data, but also as we think about why this larger idea is, is vitally important to consider and to come up with solutions around in practice. So what are we interested in? Um, so this is actually going to be uh, my findings, our findings on a qualitative study. So induction means that we have a vague idea of what we're interested in going in. And what's fantastic is all that I'm about to share with you was not what I originally thought that I was studying. So let me be clear about that. And then the research questions that I share with you here reflect what closely matches the story that as it evolved. I'm happy to answer later questions around what did I originally think I was studying and how did we get here. Um, so we're examining the important role that helping plays in the career paths of women and minorities in these elite jobs, um, particularly using the perspectives and actions of men who hold the majority of these roles. Um, so we are interested in asking, answering questions around who, how, and why. Who do men working in these jobs help? Um, what are the ways that they help? And what are their motives for helping? And so we're gonna unpack together today this broad notion of helping and what that might look like as we move forward. Okay, so methods. This is an inductive qualitative study, as I mentioned. Um, this is just part one today. We are continuing to collect data. I'll be transparent about that, and I'll tell you about the plans going forward at the end. Um, it's based on interviews with 34 Army officers, 32 men, and two women. Um, the women are African-American women. The men are approximately 50% black and 50% white, 17 black men, 15 white men. We obviously oversampled um, black men to do this study. Um, we have experience um, on the team of trying to publish diversity research. And I don't know if any of you here is interested in publishing diversity research, but one of the things that we know happens is that particularly if there's something off in terms of the demographic dimensions that you represent and the people who you're studying, the people who are viewing it say is your effects based on the fact that you were different. So we thought about all this before we went in um, and so I'm the black woman interviewer. My friend Brianna is the white woman interviewer and her husband Aaron is a mixed race ethnicity man interviewer. We're actually more concerned about the gender <coughs> dynamic than we were about the race ethnicity dynamic because we did many of these interviews over phone because some of these people were in Afghanistan and Iraq and faraway places. Um, we have two non-interviewers on the team. Kais is our insider, he doesn't, he's the colonel in the army who knows all of these people so he does not do the interviews. Um, what is great about this is he's our test to the fact that we're not making this up. So we have somebody who's high ranking in these jobs who we could say this is the story that we think as it unfolds and he says, yeah, that sounds about right. Um, or you might also want to consider this. And then we have another, um, Laura Morgan Roberts. She is not a non-interviewer, but she's certainly somebody who is well-versed in the literature that we're playing around in and the phenomenon as a whole. Um, so these elite jobs are, as we operationalize them, we talk about them as elite divisions like the 82nd Airborne. This is actually the division that Heist commanded after he graduated with his doctorate here. Um, it is, for those of you who know your military history or don't, it was one of the first um, divisions to parachute um, at, uh, during the uh, battle at Normandy um, in, during World War II. Um, special Forces units um, and assignments like Pentagon assignments and others with the Secretary of the General. So these folks are in these really elite high status jobs. We did not originally go in because we were studying elite jobs. What happened was that I started interviewing people and they started talking about 
having contacts with one-star generals and people who were in really high positions. And I asked Elite, I said, who are these people you introduced us to? And then I realized that they were people who were really in unique positions that were not positions that everybody can get into very easily. And so we ended up bounding, but actually took the opportunity to construct our ideas around those individuals. Um, so it's grounded theory, uh, which is a qualitative technique that allows you to go back and forth between the data you are collecting, existing literature to develop and construct new insights. We've gone through the interviews three times after each round we've presented it, much like this, to a group of people who's asked us a thousand questions. And so that's also informed our next round of data analysis and data collection. So in our first round, we understood that the themes around helping were strong in our sample, and it wasn't something that we originally went in studying. So we actually went to, into the uh, transcripts looking for general attitudes towards helping, helping behaviors, potential motives, and experiences of being helped or not in their careers. Um, in the second round, we looked, took a deeper dive into similarities and differences in helping by race, because that's, it started to seem in our early research that black men and white men were talking about helping differently. So the next round, we actually went in and coded differences and similarities for black and white men. And then the last round was the elephant in the room is women um, here. Um, what was interesting to me as I did most of the interviews um, is that what was, I think, fascinating and something that I was continuing to struggle with in this study was the notion that um, when I typically do this type of research on, on corporate actors, there's a lot more, um, there's a lot more comfort, or it comes across as a lot more comfort talking about gender and not a lot of comfort talking about race. When I did these interviews, there was a lot more comfort even from the white men talking about race and not about gender. So this was a kind of a surreal flip the world experience for me. Um, and so right now, the data on women are still at a superficial level, but now going into the next round, when we have a relationship with them, we're hoping that it'll be a little bit easier to dive a little bit more deeply into our insights around gender. Um, so, um, given that you're so interested in gender and a lot of this helping research has been gender, mm -hmm. can you maybe explain why you didn't have any more women or white women yes. in this? That yes. there are only two women and, and 32 men? Yeah, so we went in also not trying to study men. Um, this was a function of, I think, what always happens in social science research is how do you get people to participate in a study when their representation is so small in the sample. So we've sort of tried <coughs> all sorts of things, is even to get the people who were in the study to refer us to more women as participants, but we are struggling to get women to participate in this study. Um, so that's sort of the reality of this. I will tell you that the data for the two black women, the stories are markedly different. Um, and so I think anecdotally I will talk about this. I cannot make any scientific claims around them, but if you're interested in knowing how they differ, I will tell you sort of at a high level because I think it would be great <coughs> to have more, but it's, can't get them to participate right now. Um, I think that also might speak to the climate uh, that they're in, in the workplace, and so we have to sort of do more around that um, to get beyond. That was a great question. Okay, so at a high level, here's what I'm gonna reveal to you, and I will share with you over time some um, quotes, some illustrated quotes from the, from the interviews. Um, so what we have here are similarities and differences in black and white officers' perspectives on helping at work in terms of how they've been helped, the types of help they feel like they've gotten, um, and the where from where and from whom that help has come from. Um, 
different notions of how they've helped others, their direct reports versus women and minorities. And then some, right now, we have some preliminary understanding of motives for help. Some of this is about, I do this because it's my job to do it. And some of it's about, I recognize the unique challenges that women and minorities have in the Army. And either because I'm one of, I represent that group, or because um, through secondhand experience, I heard of someone who had this experience once, and so I want to be helpful. Um, so let me talk first about being helped at the top level in terms of the similarities across men in this sample, and then I'll talk about the black-white differences in their descriptions of what it meant for them or how they were helped in their careers. So men largely reported receiving job-related assistance, um, how to do the task. They were supported receiving career mentorship and developmental opportunities, and I separate these because the developmental opportunities <coughs> were certain schools that you have to go to um, in order to get to the next level, so ranger school, or a certain assignment like getting a command position um, in order to get into a colonel rent role. Um, the differences were white men were more likely to talk about, frankly, having an advocate. Um, and the fact that their advocate was somebody who was not just their supervisor, but someone really senior, like a one-star general at an early stage of their career. This notion of having an advocate was not prominent in the narratives of black men. They did talk about receiving encouragement and support, but that often came from other people, external groups, like I'll talk about The Rocks as an organization, which is pretty much your standard external organization filled with African-American officers who help and support each other and make sure that people have the information and the, and the resources that they need, and people who weren't their supervisors. In terms of their, their ideas of, at least their perceptions on who they were helping, um, similarly, they reported that they were providing the direct reports as a whole with job-related assistance, and that they were providing people, and I'm, I'm purposely being vague here, people with career support that could help them to be successful. <coughs> However, black men were more likely to talk about the importance of deliberately helping women and members of different minority groups. That doesn't mean that white men didn't help, it just meant that without my prompting, they're talking about I intentionally tried to help women and minorities because I know the career, this, the struggles they're facing. Um, black men were more likely to talk about I'm giving advice because I wasn't given it and I think people need to have it. And black men were more likely to talk about encouraging others to be authentic at work, which I thought was interesting given that this is the military and uniformity is, is really, in standard operating procedures, is really what they value. Um, but this notion of there was some level of authenticity that was important, and I want to have those conversations with people, I think is certainly something that black men talked a lot about. Um, and again, these are perceptions of how I've helped. Um, so let me give you some evidence, some quotes. I think it's always important to make the stories come alive. So if we just start with the um, similarities. Mentorship, this was just people talking about getting mentors or having mentors. Having just a select group of mentors really also helped me to get to where I'm at today. Another person says, I had a mentor or a sponsor or somebody that was going to help me out because like I said, when I was a lieutenant, the change was I finally got a black battalion commander. That's when I started getting noticed. Um, with respect to developmental opportunities, this is somebody talking about being at this four-year mark in their um, career. They left one fort, they went to another fort, and they were able to get into this engineer captain career course, which is effectively a developmental opportunity, leadership oppor uh, development opportunity, <coughs> which is that next level junior grade officer training that helps prepare junior officers for company command. Uh, so here are the differences, um, and let me just point out W is white, B is black, P is participant, and the number is just their identifier, their unique identifier. 
Um, so this is a white officer saying, one of my bosses, I talked to him and he said, hey, stay in, give it one more try. You've only been in one unit and this is one side of the army. Go somewhere else and see a different part of the army. So he helped me to get the slot to get into the infantry course and then go to ranger school right after that. And so is anybody here in the room actually active duty officer? Okay, Or so this is not, the, ranger school's a big deal, right? This is not like, a, a small assignment. So the fact that this person's narrating a story saying they helped me to get this slot that very few people get, um, that is really important, if, especially if we compare it to this next story here. The Army has the whole counseling and mentorship thing. All these different things that your immediate supervisor is supposed to do for you to help build you up, teach you the right way, and allow you to do the same thing for everybody else. And that system is broken when it comes to mostly minority officers. So the ROCs, this external group filled with African-American active duty and some, I think, um, retired officers will actually help you out. So this is not the same story. We found that was a large dominant theme in our data. So let's turn to my perceptions of how I help others. Uh, commonly, we have notion, we had reports of providing job-related assistance. So this is kind of real benign. I'm working every day, you know, just working hard, trying to get people ready to deploy. And that's what I was doing. I was getting guys ready to deploy, which show up. I would hand them a training plan and help them manage their training, right? That's help. Um, career support. As I developed junior officers, I really spent a lot of time. I have been doing a lot of reading and focus on leadership at the organizational level, not because they're absolutely going to use it in the next three to five years, but what I wanted them to understand was leadership was important, whether they were in a platoon or they're on staff. So this is what I do for everybody, train them how to be leaders. So here are the differences. Um, in perceptions of helping. Black um, officer talking about offering advice that, they, that this person wasn't given. So I would say that there have been times where I felt isolated or excluded from discussions, partially because of a, and I'm not going to say discrimination. They were very conscious of not, of saying, not saying that they were discriminated against. Um, I would say that it is either ignorance or just a stereotype that I wouldn't be interested in this particular role. Um, there's a lot to be said for perspectives and the wisdom of time, with this notion that over time, it, maybe people are changing their mindsets. Um, but you know, like I said, the whole point of this was me helping others with the things I don't think were provided to me. And this is a black officer talking about um, the importance of thinking about the unique situations that women and minorities are facing, and at least helping them by talking about it and being uh, transparent about it. So this interview was done as many things I've done lately, right around the time of the uh, post-election. Um, and so what this person was reflecting on is you, you, this politics is not something that enters into um, their everyday practice. Like you cannot talk about politics. It's just not something that is done. Um, and it's not something that you're allowed to do. But this person wanted to recognize that the larger political discourse was affecting the women and the minorities in, in the military. And so they said, we can't talk about politics in the office. But this is affecting the social, di uh, social dynamic that minorities, including women, including gays, lesbians, and all the other communities are having to deal with this by themselves and figure out how to get through this. The leadership is not opening the door to say, this is who we are as Americans, who we are as a military, really what we value, I think is what this person is getting at. And so we have to take a constant effort to be diverse and inclusive. I'm saying inclusive to be very particular on the fact that just because you have the numbers, representation of minorities, doesn't mean that's helping your organization. So this person was very bothered by the fact that we're not <coughs> helping, um, but we're saying we want to, and we need to be a little bit more um, conscientious about that. 
Um, and so then the last part that I'm going to give you here is specifically what we coded on helping women. And this is what we're going to have to dive into more deeply in a data way, but at least to give you some gener general impressions. Um, so it was very <coughs> obvious to me at time how much in doing these interviews with these men that they were either using the word men all the time to refer to leaders, or they were correcting themselves midstream and apologizing to me. Um, and so I need to probe more about, I feel like I know why they're doing this, but I want to get on record sort of how that has been socialized um, to do that. I, I, I'm perceiving that that might be about helping women, but um, anyway, I just wanted to throw that out there. Um, men use, talk, they talked about using supportive narratives about women's competency. So going to other male officers and talking about, no, it's really great to have women here. Guess what, they perform well. And then providing them with job-related assistance, and here are the differences. Black men were more likely to talk about the unique challenges um, and discrimination that women face, and white men were more likely to talk about treating women as equals. So, using gender-inclusive language. This is an example of the part that I was telling you about correcting and apologizing to me. One thing I've learned, and it was always taught to me as, as well when we were growing up, is that the Army is a young man's game. Sorry, <coughs> it's either a young man's or a woman's game. We ask our young men and women in uniform to do some extraordinary things, and they do that selflessly, a lot of times at a great cost to themselves personally and to the people who they care about. Um, so I thought it was interesting how it was man, then woman and men, but it wasn't people. So that was sort of what I was thinking about there. And then using supportive narratives around women's competency. The women in the military is a big deal, right? That's been a big topic for a long time. There are guys that ask me about that right now because they have not been in there with a woman yet. They are in artillery units. I have to tell them straight up, I say, I've had three female lieutenants. All three of them were awesome. All three of them were probably my top 5% of lieutenants out of the 38 in our battalion. And then here are the differences. Black officer says, I sat my female lieutenant down with the door open, of course. I said, one, you need to go to find a female mentor. I said, I'm black, but I'm not a female. There's certain shit I can't tell you that I don't know. And the men are gonna say stuff and they're not trying to hurt your feelings at all. They're trying to make you one of the boys as much as possible. And it's going to sound idiotic. The minute you lash out in public, you're the bitch. And they're going to ostracize you and you're going to fail. Even though I'm the commander, there's nothing I can do to help you. Counter narrative, white man says, I give female subordinates the same kind of guidance that I give everyone. Bloom where you're planted, do the best you can in any opportunity that you've been given. Take advantage of the opportunities that are presented to you and know that if an opportunity comes up, that whoever is offering you that opportunity sees something in you and really then it's on you to kind of step into the role and perform at that point in time. So just do your best at that and then really figure out a way to get the team together to accomplish the mission. Yes, um, for the black quote at the very end, is he talking about structurally he can't help, or is he also talking about him being the unique challenges of him being black that he has it's less? Okay. It's mm -hmm. Yeah, um, he felt very you know if you it's a risk, it's a personal mm -hmm. risk yeah. to do it, but also there's nothing structurally that's going to change anytime soon. Was also his perception. That's where it helps to have done the whole interview. But yeah, it's both of those Thank things. You. Um, okay, that's my last data slide, and I'm going to wrap it up here in just a second um, to just summarize this whole study for you so far where we are. And I'm really curious about getting your perspectives, not only in making this come alive even more, but where we should go next. Um, so men's personal experiences being helped commonly, they re re described receiving similar types of help at work over the course of their careers. 
Um, yet men revealed some differences in who has provided them with these types of help. Um, men's perspectives on helping others. Men describe providing similar types of job-related assistance and career advice to direct reports. But black men were more likely to recognize the unique challenges and talk about the intentionality with which they have provided help to women and minorities. Intentionality really is the key word. And I don't want you to feel that it's not that, or to walk away thinking that white men aren't helping. It's just this level of intentionality and structure through which uh, these black men are perceiving that they're taking on the responsibility. Um, so here's where we're going. Um, as second round interviews are happening now. Following up with these 34 officers to ask more questions about helping um, at work. Um, and one really fantastic officer kept sending me stuff that wasn't confidential. And one of the things that he sent me was his command philosophy. Apparently, when they go to this command course, you learn how to think about yourself as a leader and what you want to do to develop other people. And so I read through it. It has all this great OB leadership stuff on it. I want to get these. We want to get these from the other officers. I'd be interested to see if anybody writes anything about women and minorities on these. I don't know if that's going to happen, but at least I have some data around that. Um, and we are moving into the process of we want to see if perception is reality around who they're helping. Where we think our opportunity is, is that leadership is a big deal in the military, especially in the Army. Um, I've ended these interviews saying, uh, hearing, do you have any feedback for me? Can you send me some books on leadership so I could be a better leader? So we think that if we ask, hey, we'd like you to sort of um, solicit some feedback, which we typically do reflect the best self as one vehicle, but we also want to make sure that we're not just people really positive stories about your relationship with your direct supports and how they perceive your leadership, that that doesn't seem foreign. It actually seems like it would be aligned with their expectations as leaders. Um, and so collecting those written narratives is what we plan on doing next. Um, and then we are going to say that we will provide this feedback to you and offer you some personal coaching from a group of experts on how to improve your leadership skills. The part that's not up here is, um, how to get this information, which we think is really great, to the right people in the Army. And so that's what Kaiser's job is, to think about this. Um, I don't really have any thoughts on that because I'm not in the military and I don't know how that system works. So um, theoretically, for people who are interested, we think we have something like a theory of high-status members helping orientations in high-status jobs. Um, we want to contribute to the literature on diversity, career mobility, and inequality at work particularly these perspectives on being helped and helping women and minorities of other uh, minority groups, members of other minority groups, and then this broader literature on, on helping, which we piece together as being about relational practice and gendered notions of helping, and helping more broadly, sources and motives for helping, particularly women and members of other minority groups. Thank you. I'd be interested in your comments, feedback. I'm going to grab my paper. Um, yeah, so I'll open it up. Thank you, very interesting presentation. My question relates to a lecture actually I heard from Professor Livingston when I came here for New Edmund Day and very recently. I would like to ask you to elaborate maybe your definition of helping. Mm -hmm. Because when, uh, when we heard uh, Professor Livingston present, we were talking about social networks, but he mm -hmm. made a very interesting mm -hmm. and a very important distinction which I felt was really important between 
mentorship and sponsorship. Yep. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really important when you're talking about elite jobs and moving into the next position, I think there is a fine line there and a very important distinction. I mean, yep. I think uh, as women, I think we do get a lot of opportunities for mentorship, maybe, you know. Uh -huh. um, uh, there may be, an, I think in some structures it is restrictive, I recognize mm -hmm. that. But I think it's also important to move from mentorship to sponsorship if you're mm -hmm. looking to move up positions and so on and so forth, because yeah. you can get a lot of good advice, but how do you actually make those changes? And I think, um, you know, yeah. in my naive understanding, I think sponsorship kind of plays an important role. Yes. So can you tell yes. us a little bit more about maybe some a definition about helping and making yes. some distinctions on that. So fantastic um, <coughs> insights in question. Let me sort of work backward because this is, uh, so I actually teach, uh, hired at Wharton last year to teach the first sets of diversity classes to uh, classes for undergrads and classes for MBAs. And so the MBA section comes up a lot. And so I said, however, I think there's this other notion of sponsorship that often doesn't get put into the, the definition. It's called advocacy. Because sponsorship can be you know, I'm going to say you should be someone who should have this opportunity. Advocacy means you're going to bat for them when everybody else is saying, no, I don't think so, right? So I think that that notion of sponsorship still needs a lot of work around it because I think we've seen that in research and practice that sponsorship can look different for people um, based on personal risk and whether or not people feel like they have the ability to really go and negotiate these opportunities for people. Um, so I think what is a contribution or potential contribution of this work is taking apart these different notions of helping. So for us, it's not about our definition of helping, it's about their definition of helping, and then comparing their definition of helping to how we construct helping in the literature. So the notion of the research around mentorship, sponsorship, developmental opportunities is a very different li literature from this task-based helping, right? And so if my notion of helping as an army officer is about task-based helping, then this other literature, these other insights around mentorship, developing people, advocacy, might not play into what I'm thinking. So I think that that's our contribution, is actually enlivening the ways we think about and talk about and study helping behaviors. Great question. Here and then to Robert. So I'm just curious about um, your future studies, and I know that you picked this target audience because you had access to you had access to military officers. Mm -hmm. I'm assuming is that is that correct? Because I'm I'm just wondering if would you general how you if you could generalize this yeah. or mm -hmm. how you plan on maybe expanding the audience mm -hmm. to other other places because. Yep. There's a different culture in the military. Uh -huh. And so how would this study, so if you took this study and then did one on a civilian um, workforce, uh -huh. or even you know private industry workforce, would the data look the same? Right. So this is a great question around methods, and when you're using inductive qualitative methods, what are you trying to do, and what are you not trying to do, right? So qualitatively, we talk about this as transferability, not generalizability, because generalizability is all about the statistical stuff, right? Transferability is about this notion of how do we change the way we think about knowledge. So if our knowledge of helping is firmly rooted in like helping as a woman's thing, or helping is really just about tasks, how does this study help us to understand helping differently? 
So it's not necessarily about transferring to other organizations as much as it's about changing knowledge and the way that we think about what it means to help. That's the first part. I think the second part is what, why this context helps us is we talk about when we have cases that maybe don't seem as normal, we talk about these as extreme cases. Because in studying extreme <coughs> cases, we learn new things about the world. If all we do is study the same stuff, consultants and bankers all the time, which is what happens in my field, then all our knowledge is fundamentally about consultants and bankers, let's be honest. If all we do is study leaders who are men and don't, or white men, and we don't admit that they're white men, then really all of our leadership theories are, guess what, about white men, right? So that's why we study things that seem a little different, because our presumptions around what mentorship, what sponsors, what help, helping is, is really fundamentally built on a unique set of people. Does that help? All right. I can say more if you want to, but I figured I should stop myself. <laughs> Before I get on a roll, yes. Um, Robert, yeah, yes. yeah. So, um, you know, in light of the Banaji video that you showed, mm -hmm. um, my assumption is, is, is that the rationale, the impetus for a lot of this work is looking at cross-group helping, mm -hmm. so how you help people who are different from yourself. Yeah. And I wonder if you've considered or looked at the difference in how white males help white women versus black males yeah. versus black women. Because as you know, there, the sexism literature is quite different than the racism yeah. literature. And it shows that it's actually very consistent with the role of maleness and masculinity yeah. mm -hmm. to be the white knight and rescue or help women. In fact, the research shows that women are penalized for not accepting help, yeah. right? And mm -hmm. that's consistent with the whole benevolent sexism. And so there's this sort of tendency and incentive to offer help to women, and I wonder if there's these differences in the extent to which help, whether it's a task-based or whatever, or mentorship or sponsorship, the help is extended to women versus extended to males of a different ethnic group, and whether you're even interested in that distinction. I'm really interested. I think it's fascinating. I would love to get there, and because you're an expert on this, I want to add in one more dimension, <laughs> is uh, to talk about, we know each other, right? is our expectations of women versus black women versus white women. Can you say a little bit about that? Because I think when you're bound up in what you're saying is, is we have certain role expectations for white women, or men might have certain role expectations for white women, but they might have different ones for black. Uh, women and so the helping might look a little differently. So can you like postulate some oh more my about gosh, this? In like thirty seconds. Yes, okay. like thirty seconds. Um, so, <laughs> so basically, um, one of the fundamental pillars of sexism and benevolent sexism is that there's a high level of interdependence between men and women, and so they have this contract where um, men help women, they provide affection and protection as long as women assume the appropriate subordinate role. That's for white men and white women. Um, and so what we found is that black women don't have the same level of interdependence, and they also don't represent the same level of threat, of threat as black men, and so they end up being marginalized rather than subordinated or stigmatized, uh, which I don't have time to explain what those mean, um, which, which ironically gives both more freedom to black women vis-a-vis -vis white women um, because they're not being watched or kept in line or surveilled as tightly, and also more disadvantaged because they're two degrees removed from the prototype of a white male leader because they don't have maleness or whiteness. And so it ends up um, creating this complex pool of both extreme social disadvantage 
and attenuation of some disadvantages that maybe black men face. So it's a really complex, so the intersectionality work shows that they're not the sum of their parts, that when you start crossing ethnicity and gender, you get interesting results for Latino women, Asian women, black women that are neither traditional gender results nor traditional race results, which tend to be male. Thank you so much. Uh, that's why he's here. <laughs> I'm just trying to follow that. Right? Uh, so I think what's important to understand is when we can get at this, it's powerful. It's just hard because I have people who participate in the studies. And that's part of the challenge is, is we acknowledge where we have the opportunities. And if we can get them, it's great. And then we always acknowledge the 85 limitations of our studies saying, yeah, I can only get two women to participate in the study. I don't know why. I have to figure that out. And it's not because we didn't try all these strategies, um, but there is there is much deeper understanding of the complexities of the workplace when we start looking at intersections of race and gender, certainly. Mumba. Yeah, so um, picking up on that, I was really interested in like the intentionality, the difference in intentionality that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. And I'm just wondering how you're thinking about these intrapersonal identities, mm -hmm. um, sorry, generic, that are, uh, to like, to what extent would you say in your data, or would you be thinking about going forward that it's intersecting with the position as well? And so kind yeah. of the, yeah. the question that I would have is for like the black male officer and going back to this like risk, right? Mm -hmm. Is it risky? I'm being intentional. Mm -hmm. um, and to what extent is how I help this interacting with my sense of myself as a black male, and I know I'm going to be, but also is it to what extent is also because I'm a black male officer and I have to maintain legitimacy yeah. about that because of my goal and just really thinking yeah. about the, the really the internal dynamics and how they're thinking about their multiple identity yeah. identities and their own unique challenges and is it unique because of the social ones or is it moving into the role as well? Okay. So let me talk about role first because role helps us understand structure and what we expect out of everyone who works here. So the Army is um, a, an organization where uniformity rules, rules, right? We are supposed to be the same, look the same, engage in the same way, because these are called standard operating procedures, because when we go to war, we can't have people doing different things, right? That's sort of what the justification, the rationale that I get. Um, so I think that that becomes part of the, the tension in a conversation about diversity, is if everything's supposed to be the same all the time, then when people are different or something is different, is it bad if I treat somebody differently based on their race or their gender, especially if that means helping them differently in what could be construed as a positive, beneficial way? Because I thought we were all supposed to be the same here in the Army, and you see more of that. Um, or is that a sort of a good thing that I should be doing? Um, so the identity dynamics um, complicate, I'm not using that as a negative word, but it complicates the notion of what I'm supposed to do as a professional who works here in this job, because it's introducing this notion of difference when standardization <coughs> is what the value, the larger value system is. So let me talk about the identities, right? For black men, they talk about the majority of them, and then I'll talk about the outliers, there's always outliers, right? The majority of them talk about because I have had these experiences, and if I don't help women and minorities, they're not gonna get help. That's the narrative mm -hmm. that they have. Then there were the few who I won't say, they might say, you know, I haven't had as many challenges, but one of the things that they acknowledge is their race, and that their race could be a liability if too many people became aware of the fact that they were thinking about race. 
So this is the person who would say something like, yeah, I'm black, right? However, I'm not gonna go around like advertising that in a way that isn't just about people looking at me because this is not a safe space for me to sort of engage with that identity in an open way. So it was like, yeah, I know there could be challenges, but I'm not going to sort of um, run them out there. So let me give you the white counter example. So there's the white male group that is sort of, this is not a conversation that they have, right? That's a lot of people. Um, and then there's the ones who, either because they have a personal experience of feeling marginalized, um, this makes sense, or through experience, they've learned. This is the group that I really value because this is sort of represents the group that I feel like is the next wave of, of being developed in this capacity. They've learned that this really is an issue. So they had an evolution. Maybe I didn't think it was an issue before, but then I started to see, either because of my black lieutenants or somebody who reported to me or I had a black friend who was in the Army and they told me about it, or many of them, for as far as women is concerned, talked about the challenges that their wives experienced in their careers because they were deploying all the time, and that was starting to become a more salient um, dimension of difference that they could now see was affecting the women in the military because I problem solved this around my wife. I can now begin to think about this around people who report to me. So then let me tell you about the group of men who grew up, who talked about largely growing up in the southern rural US. Um, under either conditions of what they perceived as extreme racism um, or <coughs> integration that was great for them because they represent low socioeconomic classes um, and so they lived in communities with black people and so it's not weird to them or strange or odd to them that they would all be in the same organization so these were their friends and so in their narratives is also embedded this notion of this is not a strange thing to me of course I would help this person but of course I also recognize that when you're not like the majority, um, people don't respond to you or help you in the same way. That helps. Yeah, and I guess I'm still just trying to make sense, I and mean, you mm -hmm. parse this out, because there is the like, it's my decision to help you based, am I recognizing your difference or not? Yeah. We don't usually do. Mm -hmm. But for the black officers, it seems like, I, for some it's like, oh, it's my decision, am I recognizing that I'm different mm -hmm. or not? And then based on that decision, am I then going to recognize your difference? And then what are the limitations of me doing that based on me recognizing my own difference? Yeah, so I think a lot of what I also hear in your question, and I think are my questions too, is um, I think people's awareness of themselves is very, it varies widely in this study. I think some people are more comfortable. So let me actually tell you what was on the interview protocol so that you can sort of I think begin to understand why I'm asking the questions in this way. Is the first part of the um, interview for us is always like the warming up stage before we ask the hard questions. And so it was about talk about you as a leader and your career experiences and how did you get to where you are today. And everyone loves this part of the interview. And then the last part of the interview is about let's talk about identities, your work and your non-work identities. And so the first question is, um, so, when you think about yourself and who you are, social identities, they could be your race, your gender, I start naming all of these. Which ones do you feel like are the most important to you and um, do you think about those as being meaningful to you at work? The, the amount of silence um, that I get when we ask that question is, is, is much grander in this setting than it is with corporate people. A lot of people have a hard time ask, answering identity questions, that's why I study it, but in this setting it's like, well, I'm not sure what you're getting at by the question, right? Mm -hmm. um, so we do a lot of work around helping people to answer questions about identity. Um, certainly for the black men, um, 
if they didn't know that I already knew, I knew who was black and who was white, but if they didn't know that I knew, they would say, well, you know, I'm a black man, right? So, and I'm a big black man. I'm 250 pounds. I've got tattoos on my arms. Everybody knows I'm black. So for me, it becomes about trying to, reduce, for example, reduce that threat when I'm walking around. So we did ask questions about that, um, but it did vary widely in terms of how easy going of a reflection it was for people. And that's part of, I think, what's driving the results is I'm trying to get them to talk about themselves. And then the other part is talking about other people's identities and whether or not they feel like they matter. Um, and I had so many people say, you know, this is a meritocracy. Of course, we don't consider people's identities when we're considering promotions, right? And so I got that a lot from some people as well across race. Yes? So when the black men said that they were, you know, they were trying to help Women. Mm -hmm. Did they also? Did anyone also mention that they helped people of other color, and they were women, Latino men, for instance? Uh -huh. So none of the black men acknowledged helping or wanting to help people of any other color except. So they say. So basically, their language for identities is women, minorities, not specified, but I feel like it means black, white, based on the examples people were giving me, and. This many people would talk about uh, people from the LG, LG community. I wouldn't even say B or Z um, in this, or definitely not Q, right? So it's L, in, you know, so they're conscious of that might be a group, but that wasn't mentioned so much. They're standard examples, and they actually talked more black and white about minorities. Um, that was the language than about women, and that's what I, I had to we had to ask about women. The one thing that I wanted to mention, um, I'm trying to figure out how to introduce this into the data, um, is this is where it was great that we had an interviewer who was a man, because I had already done about five or six interviews, and then um, the other uh, interviewer reached out to me and said, I think I'm getting something different, because he'd seen a summary I'd written, I think I'm getting something different than you're getting, which was the point of this, right? And I said, what are you getting? And he says, this one officer is just saying all these things about women, like the worst stuff you could possibly hear. Um, and so I'm like, OK, well, I'm going to have to read this transcript. And so basically, it was about women shouldn't be here. All they do is it creates issues. And the whole rest of it was about um, sexual harassment. Because what I have learned is, is that a large part of the gender narrative right now is how it's been constructed is through and via sexual harassment training. So that's the information that I'm getting about gender in the military. And so where he was concerned is, is like because the minute that we introduce, this is a very heterosexual notion of right sexuality. Um, the minute we introduce women into the militaries and I have to do it, get sexual harassment issues, and of course that's going to happen. These are women and these are men. Um, so I just don't think that women should be in leadership positions, right? Um, so yeah, so I think that that might give you a little bit more insight into why um, it might be a little bit less of a rich understanding of, of, of the different groups is because they have a very simplistic understanding of difference. Yes? Um, would you be willing to share some of the preliminary hypotheses that are coming out of the interviews with the two black women? Yeah, uh, well, this is nothing that you don't already know if you follow the research, right? So it was just, um, so one of them was much more senior than the other, and she says how you basically she sort of fought her whole career. She's a lieutenant colonel, had fought, and that's um, you know pretty high up, a couple levels down from, from general. 
Um, Lieutenant Colonel, Colonel, then like General. one star, right? Okay. Uh, see, I'm learning. Uh, so Lieutenant Colonel, so she was talking about black women, was talking about basically all the struggles that she faced and having to navigate between being one of the boys and not being one of the boys. She said, if I got any help, it was from the black men because they sort of, at least we related on the, do the, the notion of race. And so, um, but she did say, I wouldn't be to where I am unless I had, to Robert's point here, white male supervisors who were willing to be helpful. <coughs> so it was all about the people who didn't help and then the, in talking about how acknowledging that the white men did help and then how the black men helped and the fact that they helped differently. The junior one, I just felt so bad for this person, the more junior person, because uh, this person was saying, I can't get anybody to help me at all, mm -hmm. right? Um, and I, I sort of don't know what to do here because she wanted to, very passionate, went to, actually went to West Point, right? So there was a large commitment here. And um, I went to West Point and I certainly am, am, am happy to be in this role, but unless, I, I know I'm not gonna be able to get anywhere unless people start mentoring me, but everybody's sort of being a bit weird about this. Um, so it's the reverse story. That was an excellent question. I was asking, did you get feedback on why you, from the folks who said no, the women who said no? No. No. No, we basically had a list. Uh, we cultivated a list of, and these were like some of these. I Heisen went to like his close friends, because he has a lot of female friends who are in the military. He's been, he went to West Point, he's been in the military a long time, right? So I had a list of more than 100 names. And we've contacted multiple people on that list so many times. And then in the interviews, especially the people who weren't completely awkward about talking about women and minorities, I said, you know, we actually do not have enough women in this study. We call snowball sampling in the qualitative world. Are there, do you think that there are women who you could send this to? And some of them did, it's just, just don't participate. Um, and I'm not saying that it's a study about race and gender. Um, I think the way that we introduce it is a study about you know your career experiences, but then I think for them, if race and gender has, they feel like it's salient and it's played a role, then it might be like, I don't wanna talk about this. I do also wanna mention the fact that we gotta remember in, to the notion of risk, um, in the military, there is something in this, right? Is you're not supposed to, so much is confidential. So even if I say I have IRB approval and it's all confidential, there's still a lot of worry around if my senior officer finds out, then I'm not going to get I'm, I'm going to get in trouble. Retribution. Yeah, right. And so I think there some of that might be fear. Interesting. Well, if anybody has any ideas or has any friends, please yes. let me know. Yes. Yeah, I do have a book um, I really like um, in Herbert Pooh that is negotiating the inevitable uh, things uh -huh. like race, gender, mm -hmm. and all kinds of uh, problems in the UN or in. Mm -hmm. Whatever it is, it is by uh, Daniel Shapiro. It's Daniel very, Shapiro? Yeah, he's a very um, award winner in the Harvard, uh, Harvard Law School. Uh -huh. But um, what I was surprised is how this division, you know, various gender, all kinds of this thing, how it is really played a very, very big role in the nerve of the people mm -hmm. and it brings the, the nations down. Mm -hmm. When people just divide into race, into gender, into color, into all kinds of things, then it is not going to be mind So how to overcome that is about this book where it explains how to overcome all that crisis yep. in humanity 
Commander, I really like the Commander, I like I'm very interested in it myself. What's the name of the book? The name of the book is How to Negotiate the Unnegotiable uh, uh, How to Negotiate yeah, Okay, you can pass it to me? Okay, okay. great, thank you so much. Yeah. It's very powerful. Uh, negotiating the non-negotiable, how to resolve your most emotionally charged conflicts. Oh, that's great. I have some other research that's about conflict more broadly, so thank you. I, I just sort of, I just want to have a reflection on this for, uh, for a minute, also because I teach a diversity class, and I always feel the need to have a conversation, certainly open up to the group when people say, if we just didn't pay attention to differences, would this just be all better, right? Um, so I had the... I had the distinct pleasure and honor of going on a, what I would call a faculty field trip. It's called the faculty immersion trip um, that my school sponsors. Um, and I went to Africa. And I went to South Africa, to Rwanda, and to Kenya, right? Um, so this summer, spent three weeks there. I will say the first thing is, while it may be race and gender or the divisions <coughs> here in the US, there are certainly other divisions in other countries. I learned in South Africa, it's actually still called race. And they talk about it much more in explicit way than we do here in the US. Um, so I think, and certainly when we look at, we then flew to Rwanda, where because of the genocide and the challenges that they had around the Hutus and the Tutsis, nobody wants to talk about ethnicity. It's like we don't use that word or talk about that at all. It's two different strategies. I ended up asking the government minister there, and basically their whole diversity conversation is about gender, right? About getting more women into leadership positions, particularly in the government. And I actually ended up asking the questions. I said, you know, so part of the struggle for me is I study corporate practices when it comes to diversity and inclusion. And I know that a practice is, is if we're going to sort of think about the dimensions of difference that everybody can agree on are universally important, we're gonna choose gender because in any country around the world, people can argue that there's inequality um, and we need to fix it. However, I think just because we're not talking in Rwanda about ethnicity because of the genocide does not mean that there aren't issues still. And part of my challenges is in creating this notion of blindness or suggesting that we shouldn't talk about it, sometimes makes people believe that it's not an issue and that we shouldn't address it. So while I can agree, I think as a scholar and as an educator, that it would be great if we didn't have inequality, I prefer to sort of engage with the inequality so that we don't have a reason to believe that everything is fine. Um, the, the idea is, is that when we do engage with it, it does create emotionally charged situations, as I'm learning from teaching this diversity class. But to the extent that we have positive solutions for working through it, there's a lot that can be learned and gained in the process. So that's sort of my perspective. I'm sure other people have perspectives, but I think that's how I think about my research and the teaching is talking about difference and understanding differences is very important to moving forward. Yes? So uh, you mentioned this towards the beginning of your brief, and I wonder if you guys have given this thought, and maybe this is a project. Um, is there a plan to look at the NCO for the military, and I make this comment. Um, yeah, say more about it. I think that would help everybody yeah, understand. So, so I am a minority active military officer. Um, uh, one of the things that I think about a lot is that when we introduce concepts like race, gender, in officer settings, 
a lot of the people in the room are well-intentioned. Uh, and you know, obviously I mean like the 80% whatever white male, um, very well-intentioned, absolutely want to do the right thing. Um, but the, the military is pulling it in a million different directions. I personally have really never felt racially discriminated against in the military. I felt much more outside the military. Um, the NCO Corps, on the other hand, the non-commissioned officers, the enlisted ranks, mm -hmm. um, have a much more diverse population yeah. um, in terms of race, and life is a lot harder in the enlisted uh, ranks. So you confront issues much more directly, and a lot of the people that I've supervised and had the honor to work with, are you get in situations that you really don't get into that often as an officer, right? That there is some decorum that we observe that prevents a lot of these things from happening, but. If you're a frontline supervisor, you're an E6, so halfway between E1 and E9, yeah. and the guy right below you is black and you're white, and you have to have a really tough conversation with him, and you've never really dealt with race, and maybe you grew up in a mostly white community, now you've got two issues, right? One, how do I run my shop properly? Two, how do I not get into a situation where I'm exposing myself to liability, mm -hmm. or I am inadvertently you know, being an aggressor here in this situation beyond just being a supervisor? I think they deal with far more of this, and I think that I think there's more lesson to be learned there, uh, honestly. And, and I think it could also explain why a lot of people don't respond uh, to queries for surveys in, in the mm -hmm. officer corps. Um, it's it's so hard to get in yeah. to the officer corps in the first place. Yeah. The numbers you're looking at are unbelievably small. Yeah. And I would contend that minorities and women entering the officer corps in the first place are already such a small number mm -hmm. that to, to see how they track after that point, I mean, yeah. just attrition, natural attrition is going to leave you with so few at the 0506 ranks, which is why we think about Michelle Howard, Colin Powell, and they're like, look at these people. Right. Well, incredible outliers, right? I mean, that, that's not data worthy in my opinion, but NCOs, like you said, 30% black. I, I think there is a story there, and I think that there's a lot of lessons to be trained. So these, these are great insights, and you've got my wheels spinning around a couple of things. One is around research question, right? So one of the things when we do the research is like, what is it that you want to know? What's the phenomenon that you're trying to explain? And for us, the phenomenon was about the top of the organization, is how do you understand why the top of the organization demographically looks the way that it does? Um, from the perspective of people who are in position to potentially be at the top. So those enlisted officers are, are not in, in position to be generals someday. But the folks who we talk to are, so we're trying to understand getting into, it's a career, leadership, how do we get into leadership positions and what are the barriers and challenges and opportunities? This, I think, addresses that. I think you're getting at another research question, which is actually one that I explore elsewhere, is looking at intergroup dynamics. Um, and I think this, a little bit of this gets at the gender issue um, in the sample is that, think about the fact that it was, I think, two years ago, folks in the military, correct me if I'm wrong, I think it was two years ago that all of a sudden, the, we decided by policy that combat positions are open to women, yes? Yes. Okay, think about that. There are people who, for the first time in their recent careers, are working alongside women. So we're dealing with the same, I'm not, I don't know what to do with this information, and now I've gotta use the word woman versus just saying man, because man is just assumed as a way to describe all of us. That, to me, is a little bit like, how do I engage in a, in a way that is effective and appropriate? That question is more like, the, I think, the enlisted question around engaging across race when I might be from a place where people are not, they, they represent different backgrounds. I think the challenge, getting back to the gender piece for a second, is 
the most of the narrative it seems that the men are getting about how to interact with people who you're not used to interacting with, which is about gender, is about liability and risk sexual harassment. So to the extent to which you're only training about interacting with somebody who you're not used to being around is about something about you could fall into legal trouble, then I think it becomes a little bit harder to interact, right? So it's no telling why I have officers saying, making disclaimers around keeping the door open when they're mentoring female mentors and please just go find a female mentor because that's easier. Um, so I think your point is a great one because I think it lends itself to a, a really interesting study looking at intergroup relationships um, for people who come into contact for the first time. I will say that there's a whole body of literature of this that started in the 50s and the 60s in the US intergroup theory where it was looking at the racial integration of all sorts of things including schools and workforces. But yes, so to the extent that we want to go down that direction, this would be this would be a great idea for a future context. I think we have time for a few more questions. Yes? Okay. Are you looking to expand your survey or the, the interviews, the interviews mm -hmm. at all in, 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 within the Army or within any of the other services? Mm -hmm. And at the end, are you are you looking to have a product of either types of behavior that are useful or productive or not useful? And do you want to try to integrate that into leadership positions? to try to become better, more inclusive, or better helping attitudes towards leaders? Yeah, these are great questions. Um, so I have another study where I looked broadly across the different um, services. Um, and so I already had an understanding that there were some nuances, not necessarily on this topic, but just in terms of um, there are different, so there's some philosophies that differ based on the Army versus the Navy. Um, and so if I started mixing up and trying to talk about race and gender, it'd be a hard to attribute that to, it's like, do you keep the organization constant or do you look across organizations? So I think for us, if we wanted to develop a clearer understanding, if we just kept the organization, the army constant, then we don't have, then we, we don't have to always attribute it to, well, that's because that's the Air Force and the Navy's different, right? So that was sort of why we did that. Um, I had two visitors earlier before this presentation started. One was from the Navy and one was from the Air Force and they said this is very similar. Um, and so to your second point about what are we gonna do with this information, so Heiss as our designated military expert, he's gonna help us understand that to the extent that it's useful to the Army, what would be the way to package this in a way that gets to the right people. Um, the two gentlemen who were here earlier, the active duty officers said, gave a suggestion as that's the same in the Air Force and the Navy, but how do we, we talk about leadership slightly differently. We talk about, I think it was the Navy, we talk about this as the dimensions of leadership are character and competence. And so if you talk about this as being important to character development, then they might potentially understand in the Navy why it's important to even be talking about this beginning. So they talked about framing and messaging differently to different services. Um, so I think these are all opportunities. We just don't know how to do it. It's not my expertise. I think for me it's easy to, to relate this to a corporate audience so I can see an Harvard Business Review and teaching it in my classroom very easily because this to me is completely transferable to the things that we want people in, who are in corporate sectors and students in classrooms to understand. But the other stuff is why we got an expert on the team. But this is, a, I think what today gave me your comment and the gentleman who were here earlier is the notion of this could spread to other groups in the military in addition to, we already knew it would spread outside the military. It would be transferable outside the military. Yes? Have you had digital that, that 
like different propensities of different groups to ask for help and mm -hmm. ask to be helped. Yeah. Um, one of the things that strikes me particularly about the US, but maybe other countries as well, is that there's a big premium put on putting yourself forward and saying, yes, I'm worthy of help and mentorship and mm -hmm. sponsorship, but how do you go about distributing help evenly if some people don't you know, have the confidence or self-worth to, yeah. to do that? So we're gonna include that question um, on the uh, battery of questions, I think, the next round for the people who we're interviewing, as well as our direct supports, because certainly, think Linda Bancock, right? This is what she talks about, the negotiation, is women don't ask, or, and there's a huge controversy around, is that the case, the whole lean-in philosophy, right? Are you not leaning in? I don't know, so I'm gonna ask as we go forward, just to see what, is that, the, the two black men, black women, excuse me, it was the notion of, I've asked, but it is not helping. Or when I ask and some, it's not that people are saying, no, I won't help you. It's just, this is the kind of help that I need and that's not the help that I'm getting. Um, but I do understand that because I have students, especially undergraduate students, is sometimes there's this perception for humans that you believe that people should just give it to you because you're here rather than you actually have to say, this is the support that I need. So this would be a great thing to disentangle. Great insight. Yes. Um, I apologize if there's a name for this and it's been well studied and I'm just ignorant of it. But I have this sense that there's certain settings where the default is very strongly male uh -huh. and there's certain settings that are gendered but the default is not necessarily male. So mm -hmm. military seems like, you know, if you want to be in the military and you're a woman, you will act male. I mean, mm -hmm. I'm mm -hmm. sure there's some subtlety there. Um, I'm an economist by training. Economics is a very male profession. Mm -hmm. you know, you, yeah. The women who are in economics tend to be women who are very comfortable in male settings, and that's changing, but it's still very true, I think. The NGO world, the world I worked at Oxfam for five years, is gendered. I mean, the top 15 in the, the organization at the time, there were only two women. It was very white. Um, uh, well, let me talk about gender for now, because I'm sure there's an analogous question for race that's very important in, in ethnicity. But I don't feel like the culture at Oxfam was male, and if you're a woman, you had to fit in, even though there was a lot of gender dynamics. Is this an aspect that's studied? And if so, do you think that that aspect would reflect on the findings for helping? And, mm -hmm. and you know, the parallel question about whether there's uh, cultures and settings where the default is very heavily white and mm -hmm. you fit in, versus there's a lot of racial issues, but the default is not as strongly I mean, it's a different type of gender problem, not a more severe or less severe gender problem. Yeah. I think what you're problem. getting at is certainly aligned with my own understanding of theory and practice yeah. on this topic, is you know, think leader, think male. And it's actually think white male in the United States. Um, so goes without saying there's a lot of research and a lot of evidence to, to suggest. I was talking earlier about the, with the gentlemen that were here, is that if we actually say, there was a study that was done, I don't remember who study was done, if you can remember the OB scholars and then let me know. Um, there's a study that was asking, I think it's based on a social site study, is asking people to draw pictures of what a leader looks like is a man, right? Um, so I think to your point, yes, if that's the case. I think the other thing that we need to think about here is, is if how much of this is about male-dominated organizations, and if you move to female-dominated organizations, is it different? Or how much is this just about the fact that our society is constructed around male-dominated? norms, right, of who professional workers are. I would argue also for the latter is that even when you change or even you study like nursing, those leaders at the top 
they're predominantly men, even though the workforce might be 85, 90% female, and the norms are still more masculine than they are feminine. So it might not be as strongly stereotypically masculine norms, yeah. but it's still there. Um, and I think if, to the extent that we're getting those findings, it's because of the fact that we live in a society that is still has these strong social norms around with you know, masculine notions of being. Um, I think are embedded in our structures. So we are actually, I think we do need to end soon. I, I, yeah, so I wanna make sure, I, I will stay for a few more minutes because I know that there were some hands up but I wanna be conscious of I know people are trying to run. Are you closing this out or Please. am I closing this out? You, you can. Yep. Yep. I was just gonna yes. thank everybody for, for coming and this was a very enlightening and engaging conversation yes. and presentation and um, we should save journey back to Finland. Thank you so much. <laughs> I'll be here.